Today, as I've said, we're considering another name or title of Jesus, and that is that he is the Christ. And so let's, let's pray as we do so. And as we pray, I'll just invite you to just become aware of your breathing. This is not some hippy-dippy thing, but just, just go with me on this. Come aware of your breath as you breathe in and out. So when God made man, he breathed his breath, his spirit into him. And he became a living being. So each breath we now breathe, it's God's sustaining of us. Each breath we now breathe reminds us of his presence, his spirit in and with us. You remember uh, Jesus before his ascension came and breathed on his disciples. So as you breathe in this God-given breath, as you're reminded of his spirit that enlivens you, that sustains you, that is in you, I want to invite you in the stillness and in the quiet to pray. For you to pray that the spirit of God that gives you life and that sustains you would speak to you through his word in our time together now. It's just... In the quiet, offer your prayers to God. Holy Spirit, you have been sent by Father and Son, into our lives. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us through this inspired word of yours, that you would reveal Christ to us, that you'd reveal what it means for him to be Christ to us, and that we'd respond as you would have us to do so. Speak to us, we ask. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, when we were still able to travel, my family and I went to Tasmania and spent about 10 days there. I don't know if you've been to Tasmania, but it's, it's a wonderful place. It's the butt end of jokes, but it's a wonderful place. Um, we came into dock in, Dav- in Devonport and we spent time with family there before we then drove through the heart down to Hobart. And while we were there, we did things every day. We went to Tasmasia, we went to Port Arthur, we visited a museum, all, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then we headed to the East Coast. We visited Freycinet National Park and, and went to Besheno and saw the fairy penguins. And we found our way to Launceston and the gorge there before then finding our our way home. And in in those 10 days, we did and saw a lot. But there's so much of Tasmania that is still unseen to us. Um, We have barely scratched the surface. Um, I caught up with Andy 
the other week, um, who just had been on holiday there as well. And he said that he'd love to spend a month there, just kind of by himself. And even that still wouldn't be enough time to see all that there is to see. That We've kind of seen enough to know that there's more to see. And the same is going to be true of our approach to the Scriptures today. We are going to whiz through together the, the book of Matthew. And we're going to pause briefly along the way at some of the sites to see what it says about Jesus as the Christ. And as we do so, we'll see enough to know that actually there's so much more to see, both within the book of Matthew specifically and in the wider testimony of the Scriptures. But let's, let's make a start of it then. So you've got, it, you've got it open. First verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew lays it out there right from the very start of his gospel that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you might be wondering, where do I get that from? Because what we read here calls Jesus the Messiah. Not Christ, but the reality is both words mean the same thing. Messiah comes from a Hebrew word, and Christ comes from a Greek word, but both of them mean anointed one. Both of them mean the same thing. It's like I would say, you know, all of you, but if I was from, say, Southern America, I might say, all y'all. Different words, both meaning the same thing. And that's what is happening here. Messiah and Christ both mean anointed one. Well, what's the significance of that then? What, what, What does that mean? Why is, being the, why is Jesus being the anointed one significant? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 133. There it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. And do you remember the description about how good it was? It was like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard and down onto the collar of his robe. That This oil poured on the head is an anointing, and it was symbolic of God's presence with and upon that person. And in the case of the psalm, there was this sense of the generosity and the abundance of God's presence. And so flowing from that, the, the anointing of someone as an indication of God's presence with them, it also marked them for a task or a purpose. It was a commissioning, if you like. Think of the prophet Isaiah who says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is a verse that Jesus will later use of himself. But here Isaiah is declaring that the Spirit of God, symbolized in the anointing, has himself then been poured upon him for the purpose of proclaiming good news. Likewise, the prophet Elijah is told in 1 Kings 19 to anoint Elisha as his successor to continue his work as prophet. That the anointing marks him as set aside for a task or a purpose. And while we see this to some extent with the prophets like Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha, anointing was most common for two other roles within Israel. One was that of a priest. In Exodus 28, Moses is given instruction for how to make the, the priestly robes that were to be worn by Aaron and his sons. And then it concludes... After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. Consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. 
This was to be their task. They were to serve God as priests. And as such, in that role, they were mediators between God and the people. They made possible through the offering of sacrifices the ongoing relationship between a holy God and a sinful nation. Anointing, though, came to be associated most particularly, though, with the role of king. When the people demanded of Samuel that he make them a king that they could be like the other nations around them. It says that Samuel took a flask of olive oil and he poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying, Has not the Lord anointed you as ruler over his inheritance? When Saul then later disobeyed God and disappointed Samuel so that um, the kingship was removed from him and his line, Samuel brought, uh, was sought out the family of Jesse. And when the youngest son David came before him, the Lord said to Samuel, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So this idea of being the, an anointed one over time came to be associated most commonly and specifically with an ideal king, a king of the line of, and a king who was like King David. And particularly for Israel, as they were then subjected to foreign rule, both while they were in exile and even after they had come back to their land, this king who they were anticipating would be one who would restore the fortunes of Israel, who would rescue them from their enemies. And so all of this was tied up in this idea of Messiah or Christ. This is what was meant with this phrase about the anointed one. And so as we come back to Matthew 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, notice that, that he's identified as the Messiah. He's not just an anointed one, but he's the anointed one. I mean, just like David shared last week about himself when he visited this church before starting in this role, he, he introduced himself just as a David, but he was quickly identified as the David. Similarly, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen by God and set aside to his service, empowered by the Spirit to accomplish his task as prophet, priest, and king. And so as Matthew recounts Jesus' genealogy, he identifies Jesus as being of King David's line. And as chapter 2 begins, um, we see that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which is the hometown of David. And as the Magi come looking for him, that in verse 2 it says, they come and ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? This prompts Herod then to find out where the Messiah, where the Christ is to be born. And the answer comes from Micah chapter 5. There it says, but you, Bethlehem, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Matthew is making clear 
again and again, evidence for his claim that Jesus is the Messiah in terms of being God's promised and chosen king over his people. And seeing as Messiah means anointed one, we then witness Jesus' anointing in the following chapter, in chapter 3, there in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Where the anointing with oil was symbolic of the Spirit's presence, Jesus here has the Spirit himself come upon him. And in this way, he is set, a ta- set apart for his task to rule his people. He's anointed literally by the Spirit, not just symbolically. And so immediately following this, Jesus is then tempted by Satan in the wilderness, where one of the temptations he faces is for him to receive all the kingdoms of the earth as coming under his authority just so long as he would bow down to Satan. But this would actually undermine his authority. And so he resists and refuses. And then we read in verse 17 of chapter 4 that from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now the kingdom has come near because the king is present in Jesus. And so if we skip forward to the Sermon on the Mount that goes through chapters 5 to 7, Jesus outlines what life in his kingdom is like, what life under his kingship is like. And even here he's establishing his authority because he goes beyond, you know, you have heard it said to, but I say to you. And then as it finishes at the end of uh, chapter, 27, uh, chapter 7, rather, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He could say, but I say to you, because he had that authority within himself as king, as the anointed one. Later, he's then recognized by two blind men as the son of David, indicating their belief in him as the king who was to come. While later still, others, seeing the things that he was doing, they wondered and they even hoped that this might indeed be the son of David. Then we come to Matthew 16, where we concluded last week. Are you keeping up so far? Matthew 16. There in Caesarea of Philippi, a region that is known for its paganism, you know, near a city that is named after a Roman emperor who, you know, kind of self-identified as a god. He then says, Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus asked, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And remember from last week, we understand that when he's talking about the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. It was, a, it was the way that he most commonly referred to himself. And so they replied, well, look, some say that he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, he says. You are the Christ. You are the Anointed One. Now, this is not a term, uh, this term Messiah, it's not a term that Jesus used of himself. 
Like I said, son of man was what he most commonly referred to himself. But it's others who are putting onto him this title of Messiah. And I think his reluctance for him to use this term himself, for him to self-identify as Messiah, um, his reluctance about that comes what follows immediately after Peter's prediction, uh, Peter's declaration rather. See, in 16 verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began, so from that time after having been identified as the Messiah, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, here's the problem for Jesus with, with this term Messiah. The people had an idea of what the Messiah would do. He would be this successful, victorious, reigning deliverer. And all that is actually true. But his deliverance wasn't from Roman government. And his rule was not by political skill or superiority. And his victory wasn't won by armies. His success wasn't achieved by any of the means that we would naturally attribute to such a description. But those are the things that Peter wanted. And Peter has representative of all the people. That's what Peter and the people expected. And so upon Peter's pronouncement that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus starts trying to correct his view of what that actually means. And so on, on Palm Sunday, a day like today, Jesus enters Jerusalem, as we read earlier, to shouts of praise and proclamations that he comes in the name of the Lord, that he comes as God's chosen one. But instead of coming on a horse or in a chariot at the head of an army as a reigning, victorious, conquering king, he enters on someone else's borrowed donkey. So Jesus had a different idea of what being Messiah looked like. For him, Messiah looks like humility. It looks like suffering and death. And it looks like resurrection. Amen. See, as, as Matthew recounts the details leading up to and about Jesus' crucifixion, the charge that gets held against him is that he is the king of the Jews. And instead of being rightfully recognized as their Messiah, as their king, he's actually mocked and judged for claiming to be so. In Matthew 27, flipping through verse 41, he's hanging on the cross at this point, and the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, they mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. See, they didn't understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. They were looking for the victorious king, not the suffering servant. They didn't understand that the enemy that Jesus was saving them from was an enemy far greater than the Roman Empire, as inconceivable as that might have seemed to them. He was saving them and us from the enemies of Satan, sin and death. And to achieve that, he needed to die for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
They also didn't understand that his rule would not be one that was limited to an earthly kingdom, but was instead the eternal kingdom of God that is rooted in people's hearts and that's worked out in their lives wherever they are. And that for him to inaugurate his kingdom, this kingdom, he needed to come to earth and perfectly fulfill the Father's will to humble himself to death, even death on a cross, so then he would be exalted to the highest place far above all rule and authority. And that's what happened. Matthew ends in chapter 28 with the resurrected Jesus having suffered, having died, having now been raised again. This resurrected Jesus comes and appears to all his disciples and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sounds pretty much like a king, doesn't it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority on heaven and on earth. Teaching people to obey all that I have commanded you. I mean, that sounds like a Messiah. That sounds like a king. See, at the end of the day, Jesus is Jesus Christ, not because his parents were Joseph and Mary Christ and that it's his surname, but because Christ is a title that defines who he is. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He is anointed by God's spirit to inaugurate God's kingdom by mediating between God and man on the cross and overcoming the power of Satan and dealing with our sin and its consequence through his death. And then giving us his new, full, eternal life through resurrection as we trust in him and as we live under his good rule and reign in his kingdom now and forever. This is why we call him Christ. We call him Christ because he is king. Which is all really fine to say. It's easy for us to speak the words. But what does it actually mean for us? How does it affect how we live? What does it mean for us for Jesus to be king of our lives? And unfortunately, perhaps the the closest thing we can compare Jesus as king to is to Elizabeth as queen. But let's be honest. Apart from major events like weddings, deaths or scandals, the queen and the wider royal family, they're pretty irrelevant to us. Maybe not to my mum. I think she has a picture of Diana on the wall or something like that. But, but on the whole, you know, the, the, the royal family and the queen is irrelevant. Uh, now, undeniably, for us being part of a commonwealth under a monarchy, that does shape and inform our, our laws and our government and all that kind of stuff. But in the day-to-day choices we make, it makes no difference to us. We could have a president or a queen or a prime minister or, or whatever. Like, we don't care. It doesn't affect us. We can ignore the Queen and we can contentedly get on with our lives. And see, part of the issue with our response to the monarchy is actually how distant it is from us. While there are some of us who have literally met the Queen, that's all. You know, we don't know her and she certainly doesn't know us. 
She's not local to us. She's not personally known by us. Her, her authority does not directly affect us. Not so with Christ. See, as the God who is everywhere present, and for those of us who follow him, who has sent his spirit into our lives, he knows us intimately. He knows us even better than we know ourselves, knowing even the very number of hairs on our head. I can tell you now, the Queen doesn't know that. And he's not far away. He's not in some distant country. He's not locked away in some ornate palace that's so far removed from our ordinary experience that we could never imagine it. Instead, he is right here, right now, with us. And his rule affects every area of our lives. There is nothing that is untouched by his authority. So what does it mean for us, for for Jesus to be king? Well, it means obedience and submission and worship in every area of our lives. When we call him Jesus Christ, when we call him Saviour and Lord, this is what it means. It means that being a good Sunday Christian isn't enough. Jesus isn't king just on Sundays or when you're leading a small group or when you're serving in a ministry. He's king all the time. So when you stock up your hard drive with illegally downloaded movies and TV shows, when you think nothing of swearing at school or work, but but you know that you shouldn't around your Christian friends, when you don't give back the extra change that you got accidentally at the supermarket, when you talk unkindly about someone behind their back, when you fail to control your anger and, and you lash out or anything else, at those times you... And let's be honest, we, I need to be including this, we are failing to obey, submit to, and worship our king as he deserves. The question comes down to, who wears the crown? See, when we live as we want to, disregarding the kingship of Jesus, then we're the ones wearing the crown. And that's what Adam and Eve did. In the garden, rather than submit to God's good rule, they took and wore the crown for themselves. And we know how that turned out. And maybe you've never recognised Jesus as king. Maybe you've never submitted your life to him as such. You need to know then that, that you are rebelling against his sovereign authority. You are an insurrectionist against his rule. And there are serious consequences for such a choice. You'll not get away lightly with such actions. And Jesus would invite you to put your small, false, inadequate crown down and instead submit to his loving and good rule as the king of your life. And for those of us who do call him Jesus Christ, who do follow him as Lord, are we living like it's really true? Or or do we keep claiming the crown back, trying to trying to share it with him. But the thing is, a crown can only be worn on one head. Co-rule with Jesus doesn't work. It's all or nothing. If he's king, then he's king of all. And if he's king of all, then he's king of all of our lives. There's no part that doesn't come under his rule and his authority that we don't need to come to him in obedience and submission and worship. 
And here's the thing that makes it easy for us to relinquish our own crown. He's a good king. He's a good king. He's a king who actually lays down his life for his subjects. In fact, he lays down his life for his enemies so that they might become not just his subjects, but that they might become his family, that they might become his friends. He's a king who speaks truth to us, truth that might be uncomfortable and unpleasant, but truth that actually sets us free. He's a king who guides us into life, life in all of its fullness, life as it was meant to be lived under God's good rule and authority without the brokenness of sin marring that and so living then how it was meant to be in all of its fullness and abundance. He's a king who knows when a sparrow falls to the ground and knowing that cares so much more for us who are worth so much more than that sparrow. He's a king who rules with justice, a king who brings peace, a king who is holy and perfect in all of his ways. He's a king who provides for us, who leads us, who fights for us. He's a king who gives us all of himself and who gives his spirit into our lives to help us to live how he wants us to and how he's best for us to live. He's a king who has commissioned us to join with him in his work in the world, his work of seeing others to come under his good and loving rule. He's a king who promises to be with us even to the very end of the age, with nothing being able to separate us from his presence with us and his love for us. See, as we talk about Jesus as king and needing to bring all of our lives under him in obedience and submission and worship, that's not intended to leave you sitting there feeling guilty about all the ways in which you fail to do so. Rather, it's an invitation for you to enter into the life that your good king has for you, to to leave aside the dodginess and inadequacy of your own kind of self-rule, to put your crown down and to live in all the fullness that Jesus is offering you, that he's inviting you to, that he's calling you to be. He is King Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's come to him in obedience, worship and in joyful submission. Let's let's pray. God, I thank you for your word that speaks to us of who Jesus is, that he is the king above all kings. We thank you for the word that speaks of him who saw equality with you as not something to be grasped and held on to, but instead he humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming human as one of us. And in doing so, he humbled himself even to the point of death, death by the most excruciating means on the cross. And because he did this, because in his love for us, he bore our sin and took its punishment, Because he did this, you then exalted him. You raised him to the place that is above every other place, that that his would be the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so, God, we want to join with that throng who would declare Jesus Lord. We want to declare him Jesus the Christ, Jesus our King today. And we want to apologize. We we want to say sorry and beg your gracious forgiveness again for all the ways in which we have rebelled against him and his good authority over us. For all those ways where we've tried to keep on wearing the crown. And however well or poorly that has been, God, it's been a rejection of Christ. It's been rebellion against him. And we would confess that, God. And I pray that by your spirit within us, your spirit that would convict us of sin and point us to Christ and would work within us to transform us, to make us more and more like our good king. We pray that by your spirit, God, then that we will leave us aside our kind of attempts to self-rule and instead joyfully, willingly obey and submit to you and worship you as the king above all. And in doing so, God, may we experience the life that Christ came to bring for us. Christ, our good and glorious king. We know that for us, uh, Jesus said that, that if we love him, we'll obey his commandments. God, may, may our hearts be so filled with love that we would just so willingly submit all of our lives to him. May there be no corner untouched. May there be no stone unturned. But may we live all of our life, all aspects of it, family, work, relationships, our emotions, our actions, our ministry, our life with you. God, all all aspects, may we live all of it as if Jesus really is king. May that then transform us. And may we be then not just your loyal subjects, but may we experience the joy and the wonder of what it is to be part of the family, one of the friends of the king of all. We worship you, we lift you up, we praise you, King Jesus, now. In your name we pray it. Amen.